0: One of the things about voting that I love is that it's the ultimate neutralizer. Because guess what? That's the one time of the year where you got just as much power, the richest man in the United States or the seemingly most powerful man in the United States, whether it's the president, whether it's Bill Gates, whether it's Steve Jobs. When each of y'all walk into that voting booth, it's only one vote that counts. We are all on the same level. And I promise you, it's way more of us than them.
1: What's up, everyone? Welcome to The Hardest Step, a podcast about second chances and redemption. We're part of the Lost Debate Network, and this is your boy, Cost Marte, and I'm joined with my little brother here, Christopher Marte.
2: Well, I'm a little bit more than just Cost's younger brother. I'm also a New York City council member representing my community in lower Manhattan. And
1: as some of you may know, I'm the founder and CEO of Combody a non-stop prison-style boot camp where we proudly hire formerly incarcerated individuals as our instructors. On
2: this week's episode, we have a phenomenal guest, Desmond Mead. Desmond is a passionate and outspoken civil rights activist. He's also overcome many obstacles of his own, which have led him to his role today as president of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition.
1: That's right. Desmond's coalition works to restore voting rights for those citizens who have been convicted of a felony. Desmond, thank you for being
0: here. How are you doing? Man, listen, I am honored to be on this podcast, you know, and, and and put a little flavor to it, right? I'm rocking with Chris Cross, right? I don't know if y'all remember Chris Cross back in the <laughs> days, but now y'all yeah, got Chris Cross. No, that's Cross. what they used to call you know us when saying? we were kids. And so that's real cool, that, right? Yeah, <laughs> that, my mom, what's
1: funny is my mom used to make us rock no. backwards, the backwards shorts, <laughs> And they used to call us Chris wow. Cross back in the day, and we were like, uh, "I'm I'm older than him, <laughs> even though he's uh, he's a little bit stressed and has white hair, already. But uh, yeah, no, it was it was funny. It's funny that you brought that up, man.
0: The work that that you all are really highlighting and doing is uh, work that's near and dear to my heart, man. So it's definitely a pleasure.
1: No, likewise, man, and and I want to get straight into it. You know, I I heard so much of your story. I've been following your journey for a little while, all over the news, and I appreciate the work you're doing. But you know, I know it's been a long journey from where you started. So I want to know more a little bit about that, like how everything came together. How was that that first inc- encounter um, when you were selling drugs? When you got locked up, you went for went
0: in for aggravated assault. Take us back a little bit. Well, first let me tell you man, things are still coming together, right? It's a ongoing <laughs> process, man. This, you know, I wish I could just point to one time and say okay, that's it, you know, I've arrived or I'm complete, but it's not, man. You know, I'm still a work in progress. This movement is still a work in progress, you know, and and as each day passes by, man, there is some level of evolution. When I started, you know, <laughs> I, I think it was out of bare necessity, you know, and and really not having anything else, you know. And what I mean by that was, um, in in August of two thousand five, man, listen, I'm in front of railroad tracks waiting on a train to come so I could jump in front of it. You know, I was I was hooked on crack cocaine. I was recently released from prison, homeless, unemployed. All check all the boxes, man. And the only thing uh, 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 that I own were the clothes that was on my back, you know. Um, and I was in a very desperate situation. Um, I think it was the lowest point of my life, uh, and you know, I didn't see any light at the end of the tunnel. But out of that desperation came a realization as to a, a greater purpose and, and what would give my life meaning, you know, uh, one of the things I used to tell folks is that I waited there for some time for the train to come and when it didn't show up, I finally did cross the railroad tracks. And when I crossed, I stopped for a second and I asked myself if I were to have died that day, how many people would come to my funeral? And the answer was zero. And that was a very empty feeling. That feeling drove me eventually to wanting to plan my own funeral, uh, especially after seeing uh, Rosa Parks, the memorial that they had for her. And I I started planning my funeral and I got to a point where, you know, I wanted my funeral at, at Joe Robbie Stadium where the Miami Dolphins play. Go Dolphins. And, you know, I wanted standing room only. You know, I wanted chairs on the field and everything. But that question <laughs> came up about, well, what type of person could command that type of audience? And and I realized that, you know, my, my football playing days were long gone. And, and I didn't think I could be like a movie star, like a Denzel Washington. And so the only thing that I came up with was to do work or to use – the, the things, the negative things in my life, do like a Lauren Hill, take a negative and turn it into a positive and use those things that caused me to go to the railroad tracks to help other people so they don't have to go to the railroad tracks. And so that is really where I started. You know what I'm saying? How how can I make a difference in, in, in somebody's life? How every day when I wake up, man, and it's still to this day, Man, what can I do to improve somebody's life? You know, I tell people today, and sometimes folks are shocked that they're like, "Man, you're a fighter for people uh, that have a record, or you're, or, you know, you're a fighter for justice impacted people." And I would correct them and say, "Nah, man, I'm a fighter for everybody, right?" And 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 and, and believe it or not, that's how I started, and I didn't know that's how I started. It, you know, this stuff comes to me, you know, as I'm evolving, but the reality is, is that, you know, I believe a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. We've all said it, we know it, you know, and no matter how much weight you want a chain to bear, it could only hold as much weight as the weakest link can stand. Right. What's that? What's the weak link pops? That's it. It ain't carrying no more weight. And I believe that that's the same for our community, for our world, for our country, that we can only be as great, our community could only be as great as those who have been the most weakened by systems of oppression and racism and narratives that says that some lives are less valuable than others. And when I looked around, the reality is, is that the people that's been most weakened in our community are people that's been impacted by the criminal justice system, Right. Can't vote, I, can't get I no completely job. Agree. I mean, we face a lifetime of discrimination because we have to carry around this scarlet letter of shame for the rest of our lives. You know what I'm saying? And so there are so many barriers that that people like me would face. Perpetual punishment. Right. And, and, and so I figured that, man, if we could focus on removing those barriers and strengthening people like me, man, everybody benefits. So when you ask me who I'm fighting for, I'm fighting for everybody. But I know the best way to fight for everybody is by focusing on empowering people who've been justice impacted.
2: Amen. Amen to that. Um, let's start a little bit to what led you to those railroad tracks. Like, tell us a little bit about your upbringing. What led you to the, to prison at first, uh, and then that the the road to being at that fork in the in the railroad.
0: Let me tell you, I was born in the in the uh, U.S. Virgin Islands. In the island of St. Croix, I, I moved over to United States at a, at a very young age, man. And one of the things I had an older brother that I always used to look up to, he was an idol of the And one of the things that my older brother eventually did that I wanted to do was smoke weed, you know, and that became like a, a, a gateway, you know, to some things that was not productive in my life. And what I mean by that was, you know, I went through high school and- and end up uh, joining the army. Uh, did real well in the army at the beginning, you know, but started smoking weed again, and weed led to cocaine. Cocaine led to me doing things to support the cocaine habit, and and using methamphetamines and things of that nature. And eventually, you know, I end up getting court martialed I had to do uh, a few years at, at at Leavenworth, and then when getting after I got out. It's the same thing that happened to me when I got out of state prison in 2004. Now, I was released from confinement, but I was still incarcerated mentally because I had a drug addiction, right? And so when I when I got out, I started bodyguarding, uh, doing executive protection and, and, and had the an opportunity to work with, or for, I should say, um, a lot of celebrities back in the days, you know, some are still famous today, you know. But in that process of being a bodyguard, you know, which required that I stayed up long hours. I I went back to using cocaine and eventually the cocaine went to crack. Yeah. And what helped accelerate that was the loss of my mother. She she passed away, I believe, in 95. And I just, I lost it, man. And I just dove into drugs full time. And, and before you know it, I was out there on the streets, homeless uh, and addicted to crack cocaine. And it was just that, that, cycle over and over again. I would stop for a little bit and something would happen that caused me to use and and I'm right back where I was or even worse. And that just kept going until I got arrested in 2001. And I had to, um, I was actually given a a 15 year sentence for possession of a firearm by a convicted felon. And I ended up working on my case um, and reducing that time to four years. But you know the interesting thing was while I was incarcerated man I wasn't using drugs and you know a lot of times in prison it's easy sometimes it's easy to get drugs in prison than out there on the street but I didn't find myself using drugs and so I I didn't think I had a problem until I was released in 2004 went right back into the drug game and before you know it I was in front of those railroad tracks
2: and so what do you do next you're standing there waiting for the train to come oh well, what, what was the next step for you?
0: <laughs> well, the next step was actually crossing those tracks. I oh, wasn't yeah, ready, I wasn't thinking track. about the next step, to be totally honest with you. Right. This was I mean, it was it for me. This was it. I didn't see any light at the end of the tunnel. And so I'm there waiting and waiting and waiting. You know, I'm thinking about, okay, when this train hit me, am I gonna die instantly? Or do I have to go through moments of agonizing pain? You know, I'm thinking about what it's gonna feel like for the train to sever my body in pieces, you know, as as the 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 the, the train runs over my body. Just imagining that and even the thought of the pain that I may have to endure was not enough to make me move, man. You know, but eventually, you know, I mean, like I said, the train didn't come and, you know, I, 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 crossed the tracks and two blocks further was a place called Central Intake. And I went there. It's like a clearinghouse for a substance abuse treatment. And they were able to find a program for me to go into that same day. And I went into an in-house, uh, a, a resident program uh, that lasted about four months uh went through that process and you know after graduating from that I moved into a homeless shelter and then while living in the homeless shelter, you know, I decided that, you know, I was just trying to figure out what can I do to break that cycle of 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 drug addiction where like I said, you, you would use drugs, it would take you to a bad place. And then, you know, you would stop and your life would improve and then something would happen where you relapse and start using again. And so the only thing I could come up with to break that cycle was to well, I figured maybe if I get an education, maybe if I do something that that raises my self esteem, give me some hope, you know, maybe I won't use again because I felt that if I were to relapse one more time, I might not be as lucky the next time when I, you know, standing in front of railroad tracks. And so I enrolled at the local college in the paralegal program and, and I picked the paralegal program because, you know, when I was locked up, that's what I did. I got in the law library and worked the books, you know? Um, and so I figured maybe I could be some, yeah,
1: some people inside are smarter than the
0: lawyers that they even have, you know what I mean? Like- Which means um, some, most, <laughs> most of man, listen, it's serious, some of the man. most brilliant legal minds are behind the bars, man. You know, yep. And I've seen it. I've seen it play out in so many different ways. Yeah. I know people that memorize every law library book. I don't claim, I don't make that claim to fame. But one thing I can say is that every case I've worked on when I was incarcerated, I've always gotten positive results. I'm batting a thousand.
1: <laughs> After education, you got into the legal field. Where was this idea of letting your people vote? You know, that's a shirt that you have on right now like where, where was that derived from?
0: So one of the things, you know, I had a a moment, you know, like I said, I wanted to have this big funeral with a whole bunch of people there. And, you know, I kind of figured out the only way that's going to happen if I just help a lot of people, you know, I had an experience right before I graduated where, um, you know, we were in a group therapy session and I said something that impacted a young man that was in this session. And after the session, you know, we were outside and he approached me and telling me about how the things that I said caused him to have a different outlook, a brighter outlook in life and gave him hope. And this guy was like really excited, man. He, you know, and when he was telling me that, man, something just happened inside of me, man, that, you know, I felt a feeling that I never felt in my life, you know, and I I, I I the telling folks, I tell folks today that, you know, What I was experiencing was a joy that I never knew existed, yet it was a joy that I was chasing all of my life, man, Uh, and really trying to figure out what my purpose was. And it was so simple. It was to give back. It, 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 It was to give back. That led me to dedicate my life to community service and joining advocacy organizations, which the first one I joined was called HFHF, it was an advocacy group that advocated for the homeless. And that organization led me to FRRC, which at that time was really a loose space coalition that was focusing on felony disenfranchisement. And around 2007 was when I first learned about felony disenfranchisement and the impact that my felony conviction had on me as it relates to even being able to vote. And so.
2: I read that you couldn't even vote for your own wife when she yeah, was running for Yeah, that office. was like
0: not feeling. Oh made man, you- that was like the final slap, man. You know, uh, in 2016, my wife was running for office, and I remember it was funny because earlier that year, I remember reading stories about prisoners in Puerto Rico was voting in the presidential preference primaries, right? And I'm working on my wife's campaign, and we're getting close to election day. And we do like a mock election, right? An organization put together a mock election. So I'm going in there to vote for my wife. And someone, when I was getting ready to go in there, was like, yeah, there's. I know you can't wait to vote for your wife. And when they said that, it hit me. That, wait a minute, I can't vote. I don't have the right to vote. I can't even vote for my own wife. You know, and I started thinking, man, but in Maine and Vermont, no one ever loses their right to vote. They can vote. And here I was, been out. For over 10 years, right? And still didn't have the right to vote and couldn't even vote for my own wife. And so that was like the final slap, you know? And I tell folks that we got a lot of holidays and special days throughout the year. But I, I believe that the one time that people like me are made to feel the lowest is during the election. where we're brutally reminded that, oh, your voice don't count. It don't matter. You don't have, you're not good enough to have a say in how your community is ran or how your child is educated, you know what I'm saying, or or, or or who runs this country. You're not good enough. You're not even a full citizen. That's that one time. I mean, because Christmas is all right. You know, Valentine's Day is all right and all these other holidays all right. But when it comes time for election, there's a group of us that is made to feel like outcasts, like we don't matter. And there's something that's not right with that.
1: And there's people that still think that they can't even vote yet. You know, like, uh, the first time I voted was for my brother. And at that time, wait, he ran for assembly that most people don't know about. And he lost. But I couldn't vote that time. And then the first time I he got won. to vote was when he ran. Uh, no, he, he actually lost again. <laughs> and then he won afterwards. Did you vote the third time? But... Uh, I voted a
0: third time and then he won, you know, third time's a charge. You know what though, but that's a Uh, lesson though, right? Because even as you know, I know and there are people out there that that think they can't vote when they can't vote. But then there's other people that know that they can vote, but think that they vote don't count. And maybe they may try it one time and they vote for somebody who they like and that person don't win. And like, you see, I vote don't matter and they just give up, right? But I love your story. Yeah, they think that because you kept going back. Right? you kept going back exactly. and eventually I mean, you got I your could, brother I, here.
2: I, I had to. Yeah,
0: I kind of forced to. them to be honest.
1: <laughs> As I was petitioning for my brother, like on the street and telling, you know, stopping people and I'm in the hood and the projects, Over here in New York, people were like, oh, I can't vote. I got a felony. I'm like, you off parole? They're like, yeah, but I caught a felony, you know, back in 95 or whatever it was. And and I was like, you could go vote. You just got to get registered. So a lot of people have the misinformation that they can't vote, you know. Uh, In New York State, I was allowed to vote after parole. And now they overturned that. Now you could
0: vote while you're on parole, you know, which is a different story. That's something that is definitely on my radar. Things something that I've been working on on a project now uh, for quite some time, a national project, to really educate people around that, man, because we, we've seen that happen. We've seen it happen in Florida, which is a lot more complex, but then in places like Georgia and other places where people can vote once they're, you know, if they're not on on, on paper. There were so many people that was walking around just automatically thinking that in in all of these states, man, that they don't have a voice, and they do. And not only do they have a voice, their voice can be the difference, right? In elections, you know, from local elections all the way up to national elections.
2: Exactly. You know, here in New York City, in my district, we only get 8% turnout. Yeah, that's really small for one of the most densest places in the country. And so even having 500 people, 200 people, Go out and vote is a game changer It's the difference between winning or losing (laughs) in one of my elections. I lost by 1% of the vote, 200 votes. (laughs) Imagine if people had the education to know that once they were off parole, that they can vote, it would have been a game changer. You
1: blamed it on me, though. Yeah, He, blames, he, blame he it blamed it on, it. It on me because I went on vacation to Mexico. And he was like, yo, you know the whole hood. You could have got the whole hood to <laughs> but vote that's, for but me. He's so right. and, uh,
0: but he's so right. But he's so right. Listen, I he was, he was I'm with right. your brother on this, man. You know, it, <laughs> hey, listen, let me tell you something. Let me tell you. I don't know. who the who, who, one of your favorite rappers growing up? Uh, I Jay-Z. Mean, yeah, Jay-Z, Jay-Z doing a concert D- at Madison DMX Square Garden. Biggie. Right. You going by yourself? Okay, nah. we're going to take your boys with you, right? Yeah, Okay, absolutely. then and that's how we absolutely. got to treat voting, man. Voting is not something that we do yeah. by ourselves. Voting is something that we need to take the people that we care about with and make sure that they're voting, man.
1: How is that process of convincing that person? Because it's, it's hard, like... I'll tell my homies on the block and be like, yo, you got to vote. My brother's running for this election, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, yo, I don't trust the system. You know, the thing is set up. Like, how do you educate them from that point when they say that and they
0: just like brush you off? There's two angles I come at with that one. One of them is, and this is something that I've experienced, not even mostly in Florida, but even in other places. I would hear comments like that. Right. Or my vote don't count. I've got time for that. Right. And. I would say 90% of the time that I've ran into someone that said that, when I came from a different angle, come to find out that they was under the impression that they can't vote. But they were too embarrassed to say that they can't vote, right? You got people who feel Mm -hmm. that they can't vote that would tell you it quickly. Oh, yeah, I'm registered. I don't got time for that. And the reality is they're not registered to vote. Because they do believe that they cannot, because that's a scarlet letter of shame, bro. You know, I, I'm telling you, I know the feeling coming home and having somebody ask me to register to vote, man. They were like slapping me in my face, reminding me that I'm not good enough. I'm not really a part of my community. The other thing is that when I talk to folks, man, and I, and I tell them, man, I'm like, let me tell you, if your vote did not matter, then why the hell are so many people using so many resources, spending so much amount of money to keep you from voting? Mm. Right? Because I know exactly. if I got something and it seems like a lot of people trying to take it from me, even if I don't recognize the value in it, I'm going to hold on to that thing until I find out what's going down. Because I don't want to get yeah. hustled. If there's people that's trying to get something from me that I got, Right. I know it has some value. I Absolutely. just got to figure it out. And until they figure it out, man, just go ahead and vote for my brother.
2: Tell us a little bit more about Amendment Four, where you not only convince people that you should have the right to vote, you change the law of the land in one of the most important states in Florida to make it happen.
0: Oh yeah, if I had a collar right now, I'd be popping it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but for real, what I do know is that, you know, the issue of felon disenfranchisement impacts so many people from from a broad spectrum, I mean, uh, from all political persuasions, religious persuasions, uh, ethnicities, because of our infatuation with the war on drugs and incarcerating people, this system has impacted almost one in three households. And so there's a lot of people out there that is made to feel as if they are not good enough. And then they mask that pain, right, with some indifference or they mask that pain with some bravado, right? And they just keep on to keep on moving on with their lives. But they, those people also have people who love them. And what I what I realized was, we had more than enough people who loved us that can fight for us. We had more than enough people to where we can be successful in it. And that's what we did, man. We engaged, man, the family members and friends of people who were impacted. Uh, we ran into strangers, and every other stranger had at least a family member, a friend, who made a mistake in their life. Right? There's not too many perfect people out here, <laughs> you know. Absolutely. And we were able to create this this campaign around second chances, and and figuring out, man, wait a minute, every American citizen should have access to democracy, and should be encouraged to participate in democracy. And when that happens, we have a more vibrant democracy. And when we have a more vibrant democracy, it's good for everybody. And so the, the 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 key I think was for us to figure out how to get people who loved someone to be willing to stand up and fight for that person. And we did, man.
2: One of the things I love that you did, you didn't make this, uh, you know, you didn't make it partisan issue. You didn't say it was a, a democratic cause or a Republican cause. You You're like, this is humanity. This is about people getting out to vote like, did people try to trick you into making it one side or the other? <laughs> uh, and how did you deal with
0: that? <laughs> yeah, you almost did, too. <laughs> uh, you almost did, let me tell you. Because um, this wasn't a bipartisan. Uh, what we did was not bipartisan. You know, people tried to call it that. I was like, no, nah, man, we know, we're not a bipartisan movement. They're like, okay, this is a nonpartisan campaign, right? I was like, nah, we're not that either. What we were and what we still is today is an organic grassroots movement that welcomes and enjoys bipartisan support. And what that means is, is that we lean with the people, not with the politics. Right. That's right. And so that's how we categorize ourselves. And that's how we, you know, I was just telling uh, some of my team today, you know, because there's all kinds of crazy stuff happening across the country, across the world, even in the state of Florida. You know, I'm talking about every day something happening in Florida, right? And, and what I told him was in the midst of all that chaos, in the midst of the sandstorm, that we have to remain keenly focused on one thing, and that's placing the lives of people over politics, which allows us to deal with the individual irregardless of what their political position is, irregardless of what their religious views is, irregardless of their sexual identity. All of that is irrelevant. What's most important to us is if a person has been impacted by the justice system. And if they are, then that's who we're focusing on because we want to remove those barriers to democracy. We want to remove those barriers to economic mobility. And we want to change the narrative that says that people like me and Koss are no good, that we don't deserve to be loved and we don't deserve to have a voice and all that other stuff. That we need to change the narrative to show that, man, we're someone's son. We're someone father, brother, cousin, and that we have the ability to contribute to our community in a very meaningful way I completely relate man
1: I, I I think and I think we have to go back to the youth too you know like when when I was a kid pleading in front of that judge, you know say I'm guilty, I didn't know that it was going to come out to like not being able to able to vote, not being able to do a whole bunch of other stuff and this you know Forty thousand collateral consequences that you know regulate people that have a criminal record. Are you working on, on like breaking that whole uh, system down and 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 and
0: doing more than than voting as well? Oh yeah, oh yeah. You know, I tell people that. Man, when I was when I was incarcerated and I was getting ready to be released, right? I wasn't sitting on my bunk, rubbing my hands and saying, "Man, I can't wait to get out so I can go vote." You know, yeah, that yeah. was that was not my priority, and and I and I also realized as an uh, activist that that's not the priority for a whole lot of folks, man. Man, that we got this thing called life that's going on, right? I'm trying to figure out, man. You know, uh, where I'm gonna live. You know, how I'm gonna sustain myself. You know, how I'm gonna pay my phone bill, the light bill. How I'm gonna get around, man? Who's gonna love me? You know. I want to get. I want to be in a relationship. I want to have a family. Am I going to be able to afford that and all that? You know, there's so much stuff that that goes on, man. And I realized that voting can impact all of that, but the problem is that, that stuff has to get addressed first. You know, I, I I never forget the story in the Bible when Jesus felt the, mult- the multitude. You know, before he before he preached to him, he fed them because you have to address a person's physical needs, immediate needs, you know? Mm-hmm. And so even in our efforts around voting, we don't lose sight of the fact that there are collateral consequences that are associated with a conviction and even an arrest. Mm-hmm. My wife, Sheena, she leads a, a Clean Slate Initiative. You know, I'm pretty sure you guys heard of that up in New yeah. York, uh, yeah. working on passing yeah, yeah. that Clean Slate legislation. That too. But she she yeah. runs the national campaign That seeks to automate the clearing of records, whether they're arrests or or whether they're convictions. And so, we, I understand that those things do have to get addressed because if a person can't get a job, out there homeless can't get shelter. You know what I'm saying? They might not. They're not going to be as motivated to go vote. But if we're able to address those needs, and in the process of addressing those needs. Uh, really educate the person about the power of their vote and how their vote can change the condition, not only for them, but for the people they left behind. Because 95% of people who are incarcerated are coming home one day, right? And so how we educate them around voting, but making sure that even in our advocacy, we're fighting to change policies, whether it's ban the box policies, whether uh, uh, you're ban the box in employment, housing, or even education, whether it's a housing discrimination based on records and stuff like that. There's like, just so many occupational licenses being able to get that. When we are able to advocate for those policies and start making changes, we're able to attract more people into the movement and have more people realize the power, right, of their voices, the power of their vote.
2: You know, now with Governor Ron DeSantis, it seems like the barriers and the obstacles are probably much harder now to achieve some of these goals, especially for people who are formerly incarcerated or been disenfranchised. What's been your dynamic with with, with the governor?
0: <laughs> it's the same dynamic I had from when I started. Right. Really don't see politicians that much, man. I'm not uh, an individual that gets enamored with a politician. Now I know you. I know you're a politician. Not even. Not even. Not even
1: when January 6th uh, happened?
0: Not even when January 6th listen, happened? Let me let me tell you. Let, let, me, let me lay this thing out real quick. <laughs> let me lay it out because you, you could ask that. I believe that when you talk about democracy in its pure forms, right, I have a quick analogy. You know, all powers uh, we have, an individual have all their powers, and they give up some of those powers in order for us to live together in a society. And in doing so, they decide to elect representatives to represent their interests. Right. And these are elected officials. They are public servants. Right. But the problem is, is that somewhere along the line, roles got reversed and people got out of their lanes and they're traveling in different lanes. The reality is, is that a public servant or a politician is an employee of the people. Now, let me ask you, what successful business, you know, where the boss got to beg an employee to do something. And when they don't do it, that employee gets a raise or even a promotion.
1: No, no,
0: tell they, there's no successful business like that. <laughs> but that is how our politics is today, because the public servants have turned into demigods and the bosses have turned into the servants. Where we've got to beg, the most of us are never going to have a face to face meeting with the people who we elect. Maybe we'll get a meeting with their staffer after getting rescheduled 50 times, right? But you best believe if if a big money donor say, I need to talk to you, that politician is getting to that donor, right? And so the roles have really been uh, uh, reversed. And here's the thing, the people with the power are the ones that's most ignored, right? And made to believe that they have to accept the current conditions. That there's no other alternative. And so you see the partisan game get put into this as a way to keep people in a box. Figure that, OK, it's only so much I can do when they could do way more than what people lead us to believe.
2: Do you think you'll throw your hat in the ring and try to
0: <laughs> you know mix things up in, you know, in Florida? <laughs> that hey, That's always a possibility, but. Right now, what my focus is yeah, yeah, no, you're going to you, make that Amendment today. four. <laughs> let me tell you a significant thing about Amendment four, as it relates to politicians. We did not seek out any endorsement from any politician. Amendment four was the first major campaign that I know of in Florida, right? Statewide effort that did not in, require did not enlist, did not beg for endorsement of a politician. As a matter of fact, we told politicians to stay the hell away because this was not a political issue. This was a human rights issue. This was a humanity issue. And so we knew it was vitally important for us to keep this issue above partisan politics, even above implicit racial biases, because we were working in the state of Florida, which at the time was the most difficult state to pass a constitutional amendment. Most difficult state to even qualify an amendment to get on the ballot. And we were able to actually do that with the organic grassroots movement because we put politicians in their place. And so in spite of politicians, we were able to power that through. And so it doesn't matter for me who the governor is. They're not going to stop this show. And th- this is a divinely led campaign. And the last time I checked, and I'm a person of faith, I don't see no elected person on the face of this world that have more power than my higher power. And and, and that's at, at the end of the day. And what I do know is that, and, and this is why I tell people, uh, one of the things about voting that I love is that it's the ultimate neutralizer. Because guess what? That's the one time of the year when you go vote, guess what? That's the one time of the year where you got just as much power, the richest man in the United States, or the seemingly most powerful man in the United States, whether it's the president, whether it's Bill Gates, whether it's Steve Jobs, when each of y'all walk into that voting booth, guess what? <laughs> it's only one vote that counts. Right? You only got That's that it. one vote. Yeah. When that they vote, they, it don't that don't materialize into a thousand votes or a million votes. It's only one vote. We are all on the same level. And I promise you, it's way more of us than them, <laughs> right? And it's just a matter <laughs> yeah. of really educating. Uh, uh, and mobilizing our people and getting our people out there and let them see how they do have that power. You
1: also had the the issue of getting these individuals right to vote. You got that overturn, but then it became the factor that they had to pay a fine too, right? Like yep. if they didn't pay their, 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 their dues, you know, when, when I was on parole, I had to pay a monthly payment to be on parole, you know, and if I didn't pay that, payment, then I was probably gonna be violated. Yep. Is that still a factor? Yeah,
0: that is most definitely still a factor. You know, when we passed Amendment 4, I tell people the story that, you know, you had politicians, man, for years, for 10, 20 years, walk past a family that was homeless, that was living on the sidewalk. Rain, sleet, and snow. They ain't do nothing lift a finger to help that homeless family. 10, 20 years, maybe even longer. And then one day, man, the people in the in the, in the hood, Neighborhood said, "You know what, man? We tired of this, man." And they came together and they built that family a house. You with me? As soon as they complete building the house, here comes the politician wanting to demand how the house get furnished. Like what the hell? <laughs> you know, well, you you know, you had more than enough opportunity to address this situation, and you refuse to do so. And then when the people come together through a citizens' initiative to address the issue. When we pass it, right, and we get what we want, you want to come in now and start dictating the rules. And that's what they did. But that's what happens when you have partisan politics in it. Because here's the deal, man. And COVID-19, I think, shows us this, man, that there's a difference between a politician and the public servant. When politicians are involved, this country has become more divided. People die. When public servants are involved, people have opportunity to live and we come together. And the difference is, is that a public servant at some point hear the cries of the people and would put the needs of the people over their partisan politics. We passed Amendment 4 in a very beautiful fashion. We had Republicans and Democrats. Over a million Republicans voted for this, right? We had a million more people that voted for Amendment 4 than for the governor of Florida. A million more voted for our petition than for Governor DeSantis, right? And so when we looked at those people, what we seen, man, was, man, we had over 5.1 million votes that wasn't based on hate or fear, but there were votes that were based on love, forgiveness, and redemption, right? And we showed how love can win the day. We showed how we can move major issues without having to attack each other or tear each other apart, right? Or still fearing each other. We showed that it can be done a different way, right? And after we got through doing that, here comes partisan politics, inserting its hand in, and then it became ugly. Now we got fines and fees that people have to pay. Now what do we do? We rolled up our sleeves to try to make the best of it. And what one of our mottos is where other people see obstacles, we see opportunities. So you know what we did, Chris? What did you do? We raised over $30 million. Wow. And we went around the state. Check this out. We were popping bands for democracy. Wow. Popping bands. We were going out there and we were paying off people fines and fees. We spent about 30 million dollars paying off people fines and fees across the state of Florida. Just stop and think about that for a minute. And then during while we was doing all that, we distributed over a million face masks and over 500,000 ounces of sanitizers to prisons, to jails, to homeless shelters, to Supervisor of Elections Office, to Food Lines, right? We did that. And so our response to the partisan politics was like, okay, yeah, we're going to let the politicians like legislate and and politic. We're going to let the litigators litigate, and we're going to remain keenly focused on the people. Because when politicians be going back and forth, the only people that suffer is us. It's regular, everyday people.
2: That's incredible. So so what's next? Like, all right, right now you spent thirty million dollars in paying people's fines. What do you think is the next obstacle for your organization and, and for yourself?
0: We don't approach this from a, a obstacle lens. We approach this from a more solution based, you know, or what we call asset framing, right? It's here's the deal, right? Here we are as people who have at some point or another lost the right to vote. We are the best emissaries to talk to folks about the value of voting and how we honor that by actually participating in elections. We are ambassadors to educate people about that. A lot of things that we are marching for, if we can get the same intensity and people marching to the ballot box, well, we'll make that happen. You know what I'm saying? we increase that 8% turnout, we'll get the right people have been there. And so I think that, you know, when I look at, when I look at, you know, what is that thing that we're trying to accomplish uh, in the in, in the near future is really a mindset change, you know, letting people understand the power that they have, but then let other folks understand that, you know, removing obstacles for people who've been impacted by the justice system is a benefit for everyone, right? Going back to that 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 chain, you know, weakest link in the chain, right? Understanding that you're not a person is not losing anything if I'm able to vote, if I'm able to get a job, if I'm able to get a house, if I'm able, you know, to get transportation. No, you, you. as a matter of fact, you gain a lot if I'm able to do that. And we've got to get people into that mindset because you have a lot of folks that think, oh, oh, he, he have a felony conviction. He shouldn't be doing this or he shouldn't be doing that. And then you have people that try to even distinguish between violent and nonviolent, right? Which to me is yep, kind yep. of... Backwards and crazy, anyhow, because at the end of the day, whether a person committed a serious crime or less serious crime, they're still gonna re- be released back into the community, anyhow, yep. right? And even if it's a person that has committed a serious crime, well, you should be doubly uh, uh, committed to making sure that that person can successfully reintegrate, right? Because if I can't get a job, I can't get housing, I can't get transportation. I'm ostracized from the community. and made you feel like I'm less than. Chances are, you might be my next victim.
1: Absolutely, man. You know, so so tell us about your book. You know, when when did it come out? You know, tell us like, is it about this journey that you just told us about? You know, I, I would. I'm very very interested in, in reading it, man.
0: You know, I was nervous. It's my first book. I was very nervous about it, man. But the feedback I've been getting over the last year or so have been tremendous. Um man it's something in there for everyone um it's a It's a story about overcoming obstacles. man, let me tell you, listen all right if you know two thousand and five standing in front of railroad tracks, crackhead, homeless, unemployed, ready to kill myself, right. Somebody would have came up to me right then and there and told me, "Man, Desmond, don't do it because in a few years you're going to meet the president of the United States a couple of times, and you're going to serve on boards with mayors and commissioners and and attorney generals and 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 you're going to lead an effort. You know, you're <laughs> going to testify before the United Nations. You're going to lead an effort to 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 restore voting rights to 1.4 million folks. You're going to be a Time Magazine 100 most influential." Uh, people in the world, you're gonna you're gonna be a MacArthur genius. If somebody would have told me that damn, man, I would have put them in a chokehold, right? And the first thing I would have asked them was where they get that good dope. They smoke it, right? Where they get that good dope? Because there's no way you could believe it. Make me believe at that time that something like that can happen, right? But I'm a, I'm a living testimony to that. And in that book, if you get that book, you get to take that journey right along with me to see how I went from being a crackhead that was getting ready to jump in front of a train to a MacArthur genius. And let me tell you something, the only award now higher than that, the only one left to get, and that's the Nobel Peace Prize, right? And so if a homeless crack addict, right, can change his life to be like, when, when Time Magazine told me that, you know, I, was, I, I made that list, and I asked my wife, do that mean in the country? And my wife's response was like, no, baby. They meant the world. And my, my only reply to that was, man, it's more than 100 countries in the world. You know what I'm saying? And for me to make that 100 list, for me to make that genius list as a person with a criminal history, that speaks volumes. That speaks volumes to everyone. And that's why I told the Time magazine folks that they messed up. That, that addition, they put Dwayne The Rock Johnson on the cover. First of all, I look better than that dude, right? <laughs> but the thing is, I felt they should have put me on there because putting me on there sends a clear message, man, that you don't need to be a movie star. You don't need to be an athlete. You don't need to be a billionaire. You don't even need to be a politician to have an impact in your community, in your state, in your country, or even the world. If Desmond can do it, so can you. That book, Let My People Vote, get it. In it is a lot of source of inspiration and motivation that let anyone who read that book, it will give them a blueprint on how they can be as impactful as they can possibly be and change the world. Thank you, Desmond. I appreciate
1: you. And it was an honor, definitely an honor to have you over here. I appreciate your movement. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to definitely get that book. Uh, you know, shout out to everything you're doing in Florida. Shout out to everything you're doing around the world, man. Thank you. Yep, you know it, you know
0: it. <laughs> I really appreciate,
1: appreciate the love.
2: Thanks for listening to this episode of The Hardest Step. And I'm your host, Kors, And I'm your host, Chris. To hear more stories like this one, be sure to subscribe to our podcast.
1: We drop new episodes every Wednesday. We'll see you next week. Special thanks
2: to our producers, Monica and Moyo.